Good morning. Take your Bibles. Turn with me to John chapter 10. We will finish John 10 out today. We've made it through the blizzard of 2021, right? Looked outside, it was snowing. Looked outside again, it was gone. I guess that's how most of us like, especially if we have to drive. I know we've been uh, seeing a lot of news. I have prayed for myself and I hope that you have prayed for yourself. Uh, We've gathered here today as God's people because our faith is not in America nor our governmental systems nor in anything else, but our faith and our hope is in Jesus Christ. And so God's people show that by gathering on the first day of the week uh, to worship him. So let us gain strength and encouragement uh, through the word of God. John chapter 10, stand with me. We're going to look down to verses 42. I'm going to read verses 22 to 30, just to get us started this morning. This is God's Word. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to them, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you. And you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Pray with me. Lord, this is powerfully good, sovereign news this morning. That our safety, our joy, our peace, our security does not rest in any man any government, any election. It rests in you, in our triune God, in the very person of Jesus Christ who came and lived for us. And so, Lord, we worship you today. We must worship you. We need to worship you today. Encourage your people. Lift up the downhearted. Gather your sheep, God. Gather them, Lord. For the day is drawing short. Gather them. Let us encourage each other today in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. I don't know if you're into such things. I'm not really. Um, If you go on like YouTube or something, you look up like the top ten conspiracy theories. Some of them we're familiar with. Some of them you're like, Hey, God's got too much time on his hands. Like this one, it's a big thing. It's not as big now as it was. There's actually no moon. The moon is a government conspiracy. They project the moon out there. The moon doesn't really exist. The government's just trying to cover up something. Maybe a giant spaceship or something out there about to attack or something. Uh, The humor about some of these theories is that they believe them despite all the evidence. 
sort of what's going on here. John chapter 10, John has tried to summarize the life of Jesus Christ, his, what he has said and what he has done. And he keeps making the point that the most religious people of that day did not believe. Despite all the evidence, despite what he said, despite what he did. Matter of fact, if you look at verses 19 to 21, you'll see that there is, at the end of this, division and confusion. And it's like Micah has said, it's, it's all surrounding the identity of this man. Is he a Messiah or is he a maniac? Is he Lord or is he just deluded? If, is he just deluded or is he actually dangerous? And so, it's John's task for his audience... And this morning for us is to say, have we, have we understood the point of the gospel of John so far? So let us remember, they're, they're on the screen, the signs. We're six into the sign. There's only one more. We'll get to that one next week. Remember, Jesus in John 2 turned water into wine. Then he cleansed the temple, John 2. He healed the nobleman's son, John 4. He healed the lame man, John 5. He fed the multitude, John 6. He healed the blind man, John chapter 9. And here we are, right? Number 6 sign has just happened. We don't need this discourse about the identity of the shepherd, of Jesus. And listen, this morning, the identity of his sheep. tucked between the healing of the blind man and the raising of a dead man is the identity of a good shepherd. That's important. We'll look at that in a minute. And so, our task today, the main idea of the text, Jesus reveals His identity to expose and to reveal two things, unbelief and, our, and reveal our eternal security. So the good shepherd identity reveals unbelief. Now, if you've ever bought a car, a house, entered into any kind of contract, uh, made a, a will or anything where you had a couple of parties involved, whether it was the car dealership in you or whether it was the bank in you, or you have to have a notary, right? Some of you may even be notaries. The notary doesn't have to understand the document. They don't care about the contents. That's your problem, right? That, so what the notary is doing is authenticating the signatures on the document. And so everybody that's supposed to have internalized the document, understood it, and are binding themselves to it, have to be in the presence of the notary as they authenticate these signatures because the signatures bind the person to the reality of the document. So this is an illustration. How do we authenticate the good shepherd? And how do we authenticate who are the sheep and who are the non-sheep? As they were, how do you authenticate the signatures, and if they are, what does the signature look like? Well, that's the issue in front of us, and it has been through the whole Gospel of John. 
If we hadn't got some of these things, John just keeps repeating them to make sure we get it. But we first run into these enemies, these people, as we'll see, that hate the Lord. And they ask him a question, verse 24. It says, are you the Christ? Not a new question, right? They've asked him, who is he? And then they've asked him, who do you think you are? Who do you think you're trying to make yourself to be? And they finally say, listen, quit tiptoeing around it. Just tell us plainly. Verses 24 and 25. They're, are they really concerned about the truth? No. We've encountered this. If you, if you share your faith enough, you're, you'll run into somebody who asks you questions that don't really care about the truth. This was the issue. They, they wanted to, as it were, string him up for... For blasphemy, that was their goal, that was their aim. They wanted to either stone him or crucify him or get rid of him. The best way to do it is to get him to perjure himself, to, to tell him that he was actually God, that he was the Messiah plainly. In verse 25, he said, I've already told you that. But you don't believe. So this is the, Jesus leans in even more so to the identity of this shepherd. And what, he, what is, he gives us in the context that we oftentimes miss is in verse 22. This is critical. It's critical for our context to understand. Verse 22 says this, At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. So you need to ask yourself when you read, you need to stop. You need to ask yourself exactly what is the feast of dedication. Why is that important? Why did John put that detail here? It could have been any time, but it wasn't. It was during this time. I am always amazed that I know that many of you probably listened to much on end times things and events and when somebody starts in the Old Testament and they start to lay it out. I am amazed how much people skip this aspect of Jewish history. It was so important that they have a feast that still goes on today because of it. This happened in 167 B.C. That's why you won't find the Feast of Dedication described in the Old Testament text because it happened later. In 167 B.C., a Syrian named Antiochus Epiphanes overran Jerusalem. And when he did, he polluted the temple. He set up his own altar in the place, an altar to sacrifice to pagan gods and committed an abomination that left the temple desolate. The Jews were so affected by this that they began to revolt. It began to grow until a man named Judas Maccabee led that revolt. They called him Judas the Hammer. They give you an idea about how, about how he... he took things, and he led them and actually recaptured the temple, reconsecrated it to God. And they set up a celebration that they would celebrate in their homes every year called the Feast of Dedications. We understand this today to be Hanukkah. This is critical in Jewish history. So important for them of what they were expecting to happen in the future that they had a feast. You see, there is a danger of expectation. Most of us are so miserable because we expect too much from our children. We expect too much from our spouse. We expect too much from our job. We expect too much from our government. And so we're always disappointed. What did they expect? Jesus the hammer. That's what they expected. 
And instead, what did they get? Jesus, the servant. So they hated him. They wanted to get rid of him. This was the question. The, the, the identity that they want was not the identity that he proclaimed to be. Verse 25 said, I told you, but you don't believe. The works, listen to what he says. This Verse 25 is important to this text. I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. So how did he reveal his identity to them? He revealed it through his words. You see that? I told you. He revealed it through the I am's. That's what John wants you to get through the gospel. All the I am's. I am the bread of life. I am the water of life. <laughs> I am the I am. He proclaimed it to them. They understood it. That's why they hated him. But also his works. John wants you to understand that. That's why he gives you seven signs of which he said if he wrote them all down, there wouldn't be a book enough to hold them all. And not only this, John wants you to get this this morning. Jesus and the Father have a unique relationship with each other. That's how the Son reveals his identity. Through the Word, through his words, through his works and through his unique relationship with his Father. All of this points to that. He said, I've, you've seen all of that. I've told you all of that, but you still do not believe. So, you see, the identity not only reveals the good shepherd, it reveals the reality of the sheep and the non-sheep. Verses uh, 27 and 28. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I will give them eternal life. So, go back to our notary illustration. Let's say I show up at a notary. Jason, I think he's a notary. So I show up at Jason's office, and I have a bill of sale, and I have a title. It's to a car. The other guy who, bought, who supposedly sold me the car is not there. I said, you know, he got COVID. He couldn't make it. But here, I've got his signature right here. Can't you just notarize it? No. How do I know? This is the notary saying. How do I know that that signature is authentic? How do I, how do I not know you stole that title and you just signed his name to it? This is the question. How do you know the sheep are sheep? How do you know... That the non-sheep are not sheep. It says the very identity of Christ reveals it. Do you see it? Verse 27. So simple. Can't be misunderstood. My sheep hear my voice. And I know them. And they follow me. We've already been singing to make our first point. Of how we know the sheep. How the sheep and the non-sheep reveal themselves. They believe. That's what we've been singing about. All morning, we believe. Believing, as we saw last week, is fundamental to entrance into the gate, which, which Jesus himself is the gate. One way, faith in him is the only way. And yet, we know this, don't we? Gather everybody in the King's Mountain, Cherival, Shelby, and Gastonia together, and ask them, do you believe in Jesus Christ? 
How many of them will raise their hand? Do you see, wouldn't it? The question is, how do you know you believe? How do you know you believe? My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Do you see it? The identity of the sheep is, the, is that they listen and that they follow. They must believe. But how do we know they believe? It is the authenticity of their signature that that signature looks like listening and following the shepherd. And it doesn't look like anything else. This is the signature of the sheep, you see. Anything else is not authentic. This is not new information. He's already said this. In the beginning of chapter 10, he's repeating himself. True sheep listen to the shepherd. Non-sheep don't. That's the simple simplicity of the illustration. If you look back up at verses 3 and 4, it says this, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all of his own, he goes before them. The sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Remember, we talked about that two-way relationship of the sheep knowing the shepherd, the shepherd knowing the sheep. And yet we see here another indication, another sign that they're sheep. Verse 28, you see it? First part of verse 28, I give them eternal life. That's how we know sheep. Sheep have been given something that non-sheep haven't. Sheep have been given something that they could not gain for themselves, nor can they earn through their works. They have been given a gift, and it's called eternal life. It is one of our signatures. We listen, we follow, we have. We've been given something. First John John in 1 John assumes you have understood the gospel of John. 1 John 2.25 says this, And this is the promise that he has made us, eternal life. This reveals wonderful things for the sheep. It also reveals the desperate situation of the non-sheep. The non-sheep, it is worse than we think. It is for them. Verse 26. He tells, remember, who is he talking to? The most religious people on the world. The, the ones who had the half most of the Old Testament, at least the five, first five books memorized. He says, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. And we have to slow down when we read God's Word. God's Word is not just to be consumed like Somebody eating Krispy Kreme donuts and eats, you know, a couple dozen of them at a set. We're supposed to savor it. It means we've got to read it slow. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Here's the way we read this. You are not part of my flock because you do not believe. That's not what it says. It says you don't believe. Why? What is the reason you don't believe? Because you are not of my sheep. You see, that's worse. <laughs> that's more desperate. 
And yet, this is why John put it where he put it. John and Jesus interweave human responsibility and divine sovereignty with no problem. I I don't understand why we have such problem with it. They always, they put them together. From a human perspective, they don't believe because they are unwilling to embrace the identity of Jesus. But yet all through John, John and Jesus both have been clear that there's a second reason for their unbelief. They have not been given faith. Faith is a gift. A sovereign gift from God. They don't believe because it has not been granted to them. Sobering. True. John 6, 44. How do we see this in the text here? Well, look back up to John 8, 47. John 8, 47. It's all about the context, brothers and sisters. I know I say that over and over. I say it at home too, by the way. Context, context, context. What does the text say? Why is this text here where it is? John eight forty seven. Whoever is of God does what? What does it say? Here's the words of God. The reason, listen, the reason why you do not hear them is what? You are not of God. It's sobering, isn't it? What is he telling them? You're spiritually deaf. You got ears, but you can't hear. In case they didn't get it, and they did, we have chapter 9, right? The story of the blind man. Remember what they said at the end of this? Are we blind? Remember what Jesus said? It's worse than you think. So we see the non-sheep as spiritually deaf, chapter 8. Spiritually blind, chapter 9. And how about chapter 11? Talk about that next week. Dead. Dead men don't move rocks and climb out of the grave. So we have this John 10 surrounded by context. The reality of the non-sheep are they're spiritually deaf, spiritually blind, spiritually dead. And unless God gives them the ability and raises them to life, they will not, they cannot believe. This brings us to our utter helplessness to save ourselves and our desperate need for Jesus Christ. The truth, this is pictured on both sides of the Two miracles to make this clear. John 6, 63, he's already said this. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help to us at all. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. And so when we go out, brothers and sisters, with the gospel in our mouth and the Spirit indwelled in us, we do have that which brings salvation. And it's not you. It is the Word of God that He gives us. And it is the Spirit of God and is in us. It is that which brings life, not us. He gathers the sheep. We deliver the message. And we deliver it in a particular way. The identity 
of the good shepherd brings the identity of both the sheep and the non-sheep. It also brings two responses. We see that in verses 30 to 42. I'm not going to spend much time here today. I just want us to see two realities. Jesus' identity brings hatred. This is, by the way, a dominant response that you see in Scripture, especially when you study the life of Christ. The, what they said in verse 31 is, we get it, we get who you claim to be, Let's, we're now going to kill you. Let's kill him. He's blaspheming. Verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Verse 32, Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from my Father. For which of these are you stoning me? Verse 33, the Jews answered, It's not for your good works that we're stoning you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. You ever wonder who Jesus claimed to be? Just read what his enemies said about him. You think you're God. That's why we're going to kid you. The irony of this is this question. I wonder if they would have asked themselves, um, I wonder if he is God. So if he is God, who exactly is the blasphemer? And if he is God, and we are blaspheming God, what exactly can be done for us? Because we have just found ourselves blaspheming God. Of course, that doesn't come to mind. It reminds me when I was a little boy, we went out west. I wish I'd have been older because I'd have paid more attention. You're in the redwood forest. I got a picture of me in the redwood forest, all them big trees around me, and, and I'm playing with something on the ground. You know, it was just a picture. You know, all of this beauty around us, and here I am focusing on an ant crawling through the dirt. God with us, the hope of glory. All that he said, all that he did. Blind man from birth, I can see. The only thing they focused on was, you did that on the Lord's You did that on the Sabbath day. Jesus demands here, look at my life. I'm amazed that I talk to many college kids and some of them say I walk away from the faith that don't believe. They spend $100,000 and study hours and hours a day, but none of them ever looked at the historicity and the, and the life of Jesus Christ. Not on your own. That's what Jesus says. Look at my life. Before you call me a blasphemer, look at my life. This word here in verse 32 good works, it could actually mean beautiful works, noble works. <laughs> exactly which one of these, my beautiful displays of who I am, are you going to kill me for? So wrapped up in their religion, miss God. Oh, how we can do that. He says in verse 37, If I am doing the works of my Father, if I am not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe me. <laughs> Jesus, 
Look at my life. And if what I said and what I'm doing don't bear witness to the one true God that is, then don't believe me. Interesting conversation in verses 34 to 36. He's quoting a Psalms 82. If you come to a small group, we have a small group at 530. I'm going to talk about that a little bit. I'm going to leave it alone this morning for the sake of time. But what he's saying is I am the son doing my father's will. That's, if, that's why you hate me. So here's the question. Sort of philosophical, so to speak. Does hatred bring disunity? Or does disunity bring hatred? I mean, it's something that we can't even turn on the news and not see, right? Much about disunity. Much about whose fault it is. Yet I hope, as Christians, we can see the hatred. You see, if you hate somebody, you'll never listen to them. If you hate somebody, you for sure won't follow them. And just to make sure that we as Christians are absolutely clear, ungodly hatred is a signature that indicates what kind of sheep you are. Hatred indicates that you are not a sheep in God's fold. That's what it means. And it always means that. We love what God loves. And we hate what God hates. But the way we live when we take our gospel is to live the very love of Christ. Jesus' identity brings two things. <laughs> brings hatred. We see that. Let's kill you. But look at the very end. Very end. Sometimes we get to the end of a chapter and we just sort of skip over it. In verse 40, he says, He went away across the Jordan to the place where John, talking about John the Baptist, had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. Verse 41. And many came to him, and they said, John did no signs like you did, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed. They're saying, you know, everything that John the Baptist said about Jesus has come true. So what was their response to Jesus' identity? Believed. This word, many here, means a large gathering. A large group of people believed. And so I want us to see all of that, to be able to back up and not miss the very heart of what John wants us to understand. The, the very heart of the shepherd the very beautiful privilege of the sheep. The good shepherd's security is offered to all who believe. I want you to see his security this morning. And I want you to be encouraged by it. I want us to we get to the end to rest in it. The ultimate security and preservation of Jesus' sheep rests on the good shepherd. Let me read. Go back up. The verses 28. Let's read this together now. 28 and 29. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. 
He is building. He has given us an understanding of exactly what the abundant life is supposed to be. That the eternal life, this gift we would get by His grace, is eternal. And it is supposed to be abundant. But listen, this is important this morning. An abundant life must be a secure life. You cannot have a secure life if it is not abundant. You don't even have a context for what an abundant life is if it is not secure. Is this not why we adopt children? Is this not why we go to the homeless? Because they have no security. And abundance is not something we live out in theory. Eternal life is not a hypothetic. It is, it is the reality of a sheep. We have been given something. Look at the text. By God. Not by me. I don't give it out. You know, we go out and We'll give it back. Here's what I cannot give. Eternal life. It's what God gives. He tells me he has the means. It is the word of God. It's what I give. Here's what he says. To be a sheep means you've been given a gift. That gift has a character, a nature, a reality. It is abundant and it is secure. You see it. Jesus knowing his people. The people knowing Jesus brings a gift. Eternal life. And that eternal life means this unchangeable fact. You will never perish. Says God. (laughs) I don't know how much, what better news I could bring this morning. That the ultimate security of Jesus' sheep rests in Him, the Good Shepherd. And He lived a life we couldn't live. He died in our place. He rose again. He ascended to the throne. He's coming again. That's who holds your salvation today. That's who gave us eternal life. And yet He wants to make sure that we understand how secure we are. So He says, I want you to understand a little bit of the Godhead here. I have you in my hands, and no one has the ability to take you out. Not only that, my Father's greater than all, and He's got you. There's not a chance that you can get anybody out of His hand. No one. You see, when we see John saying, no one can come to me, that means ability. Here he says, No one can. No one has the ability to snatch you out of the Father's hand. No one has the ability to snatch you out. So which hand are you held in? The Son or the Father? Yes. You're held in both hands. In other words, he's already said that in John 6. He's going to get into it more later, the Holy Spirit. But you are ahead. The preservation of God's people is held by the work of of a triune God. This is why our church fathers fought for this. You see, Jesus had to be God in order to save humanity. 
But if he wasn't man, he could not die in our place. So this is why those who fought for language said it was important that we understand that Jesus Christ was of the same substance of the Father, yet he was completely human. Divine, human. It is this one that Paul talked about. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 3. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's what we signify, puts you in the water. You're dead. You could not save yourself. You're, you're, you're dead to everything, but you are alive to Christ. That's what it means to have eternal life. How can Jesus make such promises? He tells you in verse 30, because he and the Father are one. To lose you would have been to fail. For one of his children to, oops, would have been for the Son to fail the very mission that God gave him to give. So no, I did not fail, and I will not lose one all that the Father has given me. The life which He gives us as sheep, as His children, is eternal. Romans 11.29 says that the gift and calling of God is irrevocable. And read the context. Talking about salvation, about election. Main idea. Remember? Jesus' identity exposes not only unbelief, but it brings the offer of eternal security now and forever. So what? Where every week, I, I mention it here lately, your pastor, after he has studied the message and understood the main idea that the text has, not my main idea, the Scripture's main idea, I ask Myself, I ask the Lord, I look in the life, our lives and I say, how should we apply this? What purpose do we need to gather? What heart purpose do, you, do I want you to have? Do, do I want to have as I go into next week? I want you, I want me to rest in our identity in Christ. It's what I want for us. No matter what the seasons of life bring. So here's the question. Are you... Are you a sheep resting in the good shepherd? You see, there's two parts to that question. Are you a sheep? And are you resting? Not in yourself, not in your abilities, but in the shepherd. Are you a sheep? The only way you can become a sheep is to realize that you're not a sheep. That you have sinned against God. And you repent of that sin. You put your faith in Jesus and you follow Him. I was talking to the praise team earlier, looking at the, going over the message uh, yesterday morning and got some news coming in over our phones like they do, you know, whether it's text messages or, or news pops up, you know, those notifications you probably need to turn off. It was this 
stress coming from both sides. We are too scared to live, and we are scared to death to die. I said, exactly how can somebody rest if that's true? How can you rest tonight if you are too scared to live and you are too scared to die? Exactly what kind of abundant life is that? And yet most of the context of most of our New Testament is written to people who are being slaughtered all the day long. And yet they had an abundant life. Am I too scared to live and too scared to die? Because if it is, I'm not resting. I like Spurgeon. I love Spurgeon. I actually have a little bobblehead on my desk. I'm not sure what to say. I just hit my table and he tells me, just kidding, I don't really do that. I do have a bobblehead on my desk. (laughs) Spurgeon said this, The sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which Christians rest his head. That is either true or it's not. So turn with me to a passage. It gives me great comfort. It it gives those believers who are going through hard seasons of life comfort for thousands of years. Romans 14. Romans 14. Verse 7. Romans 14 verse 7 says this. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Amen, somebody. For to this end, verse 9, for to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be both Lord both of the dead and the living. You see, faith brings a rest. And the more we hear and the more we follow, the more our faith grows, the greater we have the capacity to rest, no matter the seasons of life. But don't miss the other side of this equation. said it last week, I'll say it again. There is a high cost for self-shepherding. And there is a high cost for self-salvation. Stop trying just to do better. That will only last until the hard times come and then you start trying to do it on your own again. Self-salvation and self-shepherding is idolatry. It is sin. He is Lord. And those He is Lord over in death are those whom he's lord over in life. The high cost of self-salvation and self-shepherding is that we have no rest and no security in this life or the next. And the Lord saved us. And the Lord gives us a gift called eternal life so that we might live. So turn with me and we're done to 1 Peter. We look at this truth, I hope you do, a lot. We love Peter. Peter got in trouble with his mouth all the time. But Peter got it. First Peter, 
Look at chapter 2. I want you to see this. What we're going to close with. My desire for us to rest. 1 Peter 2.9 But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession. So we see this morning the greatest news I can tell you. The greatest way I can encourage you is to say this. You are His. Why are you His? Look at verse 9. Because He chose you. You are royalty because He tells you you are. A kingdom of priests because He has paid for it and declared it to be so. You are not a holy Christian individual. You are a holy nation. A people. A church gathered together into one fold for the glory of God. That's who we are. And there's nobody who can change it. No, not one. Why? Well, that's the second thing I want you to see. You were His. So live for Him. So live for Him. That's what it says. You are all these things that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His light. Look back to the chapter before. Chapter, chapter 1 and verse 3. 1 Peter 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed. You are His brothers and sisters. So live for Him. Because you are being kept. You will be kept. And every gift and every promises that He's ever promised you is being kept and guarded because of the risen Jesus Christ. You are safe in His hands. And no one has the ability to snatch you out of His hands. His Father is greater than all. And He's got you. And nobody can take you out of His either. Brothers and sisters, we are safe in the loving hands of Jesus Christ because He is not a dead Savior, but a risen one. Let's pray. Lord, if this gospel cannot bring encouragement to the soul, then nothing can. Are you just not a sovereign God? You're our loving Father who did not have to rescue us, but did. And Lord, I don't understand all of that. But I can only say, we thank you, Lord, that because of your great mercy, you caused us to be born again to a living hope. Because our Lord, our shepherd, is the living one. And so God, we do this as, as is our normal custom. When we gather together, we want to take time to remember your son. We want to remember the high cost of our salvation. That though we could not save ourselves, 
that you loved us so much that you sent his son, your son, so that we might be saved. And so now, Lord, would you receive our worship as we sing? Would you receive our worship as we give? Would you receive our worship as we take the bread and the cup? As we remember that though we could not save ourselves, our Lord gave his body so that we might be saved. Shed his blood so that we might be called your children. Oh God. How much safer could it be to be a child of God? How much happier could a person be than to know that we live and rest in your hands? God, forgive us when we put our hope in the next news broadcast and not in you, the God of hope. Lord, we long for those that are not sheep to be sheep, for those who do not believe to believe, and yet, Lord, we don't have the power of salvation. But now, Lord, as one people, we plead for them on their behalf. Use us, God. Ordain the encounters of our next week. That these hard seasons of life may give us a platform for the hope that's in us. God, save the lost. Use us, God. Oh God, would we not waste one more day living for ourselves when our life is hidden in you and our mission is clear. So God, to your glory we worship now. To your glory we leave. To your glory we love each other. To your glory we take the gospel. We worship now in Jesus' name.